All right. Well, I'm Glenn Barnes, uh, lead pastor here, and it's just awesome to be together. Um, hey, hopefully you received some message notes when you came in. You're going to want to grab those, and I encourage you to take your Bible, and whether you're watching in the gym, you're watching online, wherever you are, grab your Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And today we are looking at the last nine verses in what really is an amazing chapter of the Bible. And our message today is called a midterm exam on the good news. A midterm exam on the good news. Because it's kind of interesting, the book of Romans has 16 chapters to it. And as we finish up the first half today and kind of get ready to move towards the the second half, uh, next week, we see that the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this book, almost like he wants to just make sure that that people are tracking with him and and getting what he's been talking about. And what better way to make sure that people are with you than to give a little pop quiz. And so uh, today, um, as we're thinking about the class of 2021 who is graduating, how about a big round of applause for the class of 2021? See a few of you guys out there. You guys are troopers. So as they're getting ready to graduate, and a lot of uh, students are taking finals exams this week, um, we thought it would be just a good show of solidarity for us to take a little mid-Romans exam on the good news. And so just by show of hands, how many of you, when you were younger or even now, love to take exams? Anybody here love to take exams? Look, sitting in the front row. Of course, you. of course. Good job. So, all right. Uh, who does not like to take exams? Yeah, that's the crowd I was thinking we were mostly going to be here with. You guys remind me a little bit of the uh, story of the little boy who uh, failed a math test, and he just bombed it, got an F on the math test. So the teacher calls home, the dad calls the son, and he says, son, what happened? You failed this math test. You got a terrible grade on it. That's not like you've ever done before. What's going on? And so the son says, well, dad, the problem was absence. And the dad says, well, wait a second. Are you trying to say that you were absent on the day of the test? And the son thinks about it and he says, no, dad, but the girl that I sit next to was absent on that day. And so... That's kind of what some of you guys are reminding me about. Well, don't be afraid. There's not an actual exam. Nothing is going on anyone's permanent uh, record. Hopefully you don't even have to copy off your neighbor. Um, But it is super interesting the way the book of Romans kind of turns the corner here at the end of chapter eight. Because after argument, after argument, building the case for the good news, this life transforming news that God loves us, even though we're sinners, he gave his life for us. As we come to kind of the end of, of that, It's almost as if Paul wants us to get that because he groups together five questions, five questions, one right after the other here at the end of chapter eight. And I think he wants us to not only kind of get it with our head, but to me, it's like he wants us to just feel deeply and really connect with these truths that he's been giving us uh, for these last eight chapters. So this idea of asking rhetorical questions is quite common. Uh, Paul loved it. A lot of the other New Testament writers did as well. So like in chapter six, you may remember that Paul asks the question, he says, you know, if God's grace is so great, should we just keep on sinning so that God's grace can, you know, abound? 
And of course, the answer is no there. But he asks that question because I think he wants us to just kind of engage with what he's saying. And so this kind of didactic style of posing questions that makes the audience think um, was actually quite common for intellectuals of the day, um, including Paul. And most people trace it back to about 450 years before Paul, which was the time of Socrates. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text. We're going to see five questions that are all about helping us grasp just how amazing God is, the way he feels about us, and this message of the good news. So we're going to jump in the last nine verses of Romans chapter 8. So we're going to begin Romans 8, 31. I hope you have your Bible um, open or powered on, and here's how it begins. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? So there's the very first question. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Another question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Another question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? A couple more questions there. No one, no one can condemn Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I count at least five, probably six questions in there for us to consider. And so let's just go through these. The very first question we saw right at the beginning of verse 31 is what shall we say in response to these things? As you think about these things that I'm writing to you, what is your response? How should you respond to these things, Paul asks. And really what he's asking is a question of application. This first question is a question of application or how do we apply these things that Paul's talking about? Now he says, how should we respond to these things? And so we should wonder what are these things that he's talking about? We actually don't know the answer to that. Maybe when he, Paul says you should, how you should respond to these things, he's talking about maybe the verses that he'd just written right be, before this about um, the idea that, that all things work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So maybe those are the things. How do we respond to that? Or maybe he's talking about kind of all the things that he's been writing in, in chapter 8. We said the theme of chapter 8 is our spiritual security. So how do we respond to this idea that there's no condemnation in Christ? Or we're adopted as son and daughters? Or, uh, or we're filled with the Spirit? Or maybe these things, how do we respond to these things, refers to all that he's written in, you know, the whole argument in the book of Romans. And so we don't know for sure what he's, he's, uh, he's writing about, but honestly, the answer remains the same no matter what. Because no matter what Paul is writing, he's saying, how are you going to, to live in response to these things that I've been talking about. And I want to just suggest a couple ways that we should live in response to all that Paul's been teaching us. The first one is with gratitude. And the second one is with devotion. What should I say in response to these things? I should give words of thanks and gratitude and I should give a life of devotion. So this is really, as we said, a question about application. What are you going to do with the things that you learn from the Bible? Because it's super easy to come to church and hear a message like this, or, you know, listen to your favorite preacher online, or even just read the Bible on your own. And you listen to this, and, and it, you know, it makes sense, it's good knowledge, and it seems like good information to you. You believe it, and you like it intellectually. But the true test of our grasp of the Bible is not information. 
Information isn't bad. We want to learn. We want to, you know, connect those things with our head. But a true grasp of the Bible is not about information. It's about application. And it's about transformation. How am I applying these things? How are these truths that I'm learning about transforming me? In fact, in another place, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that sometimes even spiritual information can have kind of a negative effect. Because 1 Corinthians 8 says this, it says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge has a way of making us proud or even boastful. He says, but that's not the answer, of course. Knowledge puffs up, but, but love is what builds up. And, and so that is an action that leads to um, being built up. You know, it's really interesting because here we are as the church in the 21st century and 21st century America um, at that. And without a doubt, we live in the information age. There is more information far and away than any generation has ever, you know, experienced. And there are so many opinions out there, right? Everybody has to have an opinion on every little thing and everybody's got to post and and make that opinion known. So we live in this age where there's all this stuff coming at us. Um, And that's on all kinds of different topics. But even if you just think about faith and you think even about Christian faith, we live in the information age, which can be great. There are more sermons to listen to and music to listen to, and there are more podcasts to download, and there's more blogs and vlogs and posts and all these different things. There's all this information coming at us, right? There's more information on the Bible at a click of a button. You have more information at a click of a button than the church has had for the last 2,000 years. But here's the question. With all of this information, would you say that the church is getting stronger? Is the church getting more pure? Is the church becoming more lovely, loving and more like Christ? You see, because Paul is getting at even the truths of the gospel, he says, what is your response? How do you apply? How is this transforming your life? Are you grateful for it? How is it uh, showing up in your devotion? So that's the first question on this pop uh, quiz that he gives. He says, what should we say and respond and what should we do in response to these things? Second question as we keep moving along here is, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that a great question? If God is on your side and if God is for you, what in the world can stand against you? right? Because when God is on your side, there's really nothing that can stand against you. You see this confidence in the face of opposition time and time on the pages of scripture. If you think just of some of the great characters of of the Bible, think of like uh, David. David in Psalm 3 uh, says this. He says, I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. So Paul, or David says, you know, all kinds, there could be tens of thousands coming against me, but I will not fear because I know that with God on my side, if God is for me, who can be against me? By the way, I've always loved Psalm 3. Some of you who, who know me know that through the years I've struggled with insomnia and I've struggled with, you know, trying to, to sleep well. And Psalm 3 has always been such an encouragement to me because the, the whole kind of the, the way the psalm is, is David talking about all of these things that are coming against him and all of the challenges and all of the opposition that he faces. And yet right in the middle of this psalm, he makes this beautiful declaration. He says, and with all this stuff coming at me, I lay down and I slept because he had this sense that God was for him 
And even with all this stuff, he knew that if God was for him, who could be against him? You see the same kind of thing in Gideon. If you know the story of Gideon, Gideon's got a tough challenge as it is. He's got to go fight over 100,000 Midianites. Um, but God says, no, your, your army's too big. And so he whittles it down all the way until Gideon just has 300 people in his army. Because Gideon is, is God wants Gideon to learn the truth that he wants us to learn, that if God is for you, it doesn't matter how big the crowd is that you are going against. Same kind of thing with Jonathan in, in the Old Testament. Don, Jonathan didn't, didn't even have an army. All he had was his armor bearer, but he wanted to go up against the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by a few. Because you see this principle time and time again in scripture, that me plus God is enough. Whatever you face on your own, we're not enough. But you or me with God is enough. And you know, you hear these stories, whether they're Bible stories or other people talk about their confidence in the face of opposition. But my question this morning is, how about you? Do you believe that God is enough for you? Do you believe that God is for you? That God is for you. He doesn't hate you. He is not opposed to you. He is not mad at you. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And the question is, do you believe that? When you wake up in the morning, do you have this sense, God, me and you today, you are for me. I can go out there and do whatever you have. Because here's the thing, if we truly believe this, it will transform your life. It'll change your perspective. It'll change your life. You know, I remember seeing an article a while back. It's kind of an interesting article. Uh, it was called Googling God. And this person had written an article on all the questions that people ask Google about God. And so it listed the top three questions that people Google about God. And the, the, the number one question uh, was like, God, where do you come from? Or, you know, where, you know, where, does, where did God come from? Uh, second question is, God, um, where does, why is there so much evil in the world? Or so, something like that. How, why is there so much suffering? The third most popular question that people Google about God is this. God, why do you hate me? God, why do you hate me? Because we have this twisted around view that God's out to get you. That God's looking down and ready to zap us. But Paul says no. Not only if God is for you, God is for you, but if God is for you, who can be against you? It reminds me of this great story of, of a, a famous preacher from at least 100 years ago. His name was G. Campbell Morgan. Maybe you've heard of him before. And G. Campbell Morgan, when he was young in uh, the ministry, he wanted to be the pastor of a large church somewhere. And so he went out to, to Canada at this church to see if they were going to hire him to be their, the pastor. And so he met with the elders and the committee and all these things, and things were going well. But when he stood up to give his sermon to the committee that was making this choice, for whatever reason, he just bombed it. This guy was 
later become known as one of the great preachers of the generation, but, but he just, you know, he lost, you know, lost everything. He lost his place. He lost everything. Um, and at the end of the, uh, at the end of the time together, they didn't offer him the job and he was crushed. And back then he sent a telegram home to his father, who was his godly father that was praying for him. And this one word telegram that G. Campbell Morgan sent back to his dad said exactly how he was feeling. His telegram said, rejected, rejected. And his dad was so wise to write back almost immediately and say this, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven, right? Because even the worst rejection that we can face on earth is nothing if God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the second question. Third question on this little review or pop quiz that that Paul gives us is this. If God gave his son for us, how much more will he graciously give us all things? You see that question there in verse 32? If God gives us his son, won't he also graciously give us everything else? And this is a question of provision. Do I believe that not only is God for me, but does God see me? And does God know me enough to know what my needs are and to to provide for me and to care for me? And Paul makes this argument, it's kind of a classic argument, where he argues from the greater to the lesser. And the idea is, if if God's given us this great thing, which is his his son, will he not also give us the, the smaller things? And I heard someone kind of use this illustration. I don't know if it would make sense to you. It was helpful to me. But he says, try to imagine this scenario, that a person decides that they're gonna give you a house. And it's this big, beautiful, fully furnished house. And this guy says, I love you. I I wanna give this as a gift to you. And so I've signed all the paperwork. Here's the key. It's all done. This house is yours free and clear. And so you go into the house and you wanna sit down on the couch, but you kind of look around you guys and say, hey, is it okay if I sit on the couch? And he says, no, 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 no. I I gave you the house. So of course you're welcome to sit on the couch. And then you think, oh, I gotta use the the bathroom. Is it okay if I use the bathroom? (laughs) says, I gave you the house, right? You can, you can go in there. Sure, absolutely. Well, you want to grab a soda out of the, the fridge. Can I grab a soda? I gave you the house. I gave you all of these things. I gave you the big thing. The little things are also provided. And this verse reminds us that God sees us and knows us and will provide for our needs. God knows the difference between our wants and the things that we don't need and the things that we need. And here's the deal. If you ever doubt that God sees you, that God is there for you, when God seems silent, it's super easy if we look around at our circumstances and all the things that are not going the way that we want them to. And when we see those things, it kind of spins the doubt and the confusion more and more. But this verse is saying that when when you're going through that period, don't look at all the circumstances. Look at the cross. Look at the cross because that's where you see God's love shown most beautifully. That's why I'm so excited that at the end of the service here, we're gonna take communion together because God knows that we need to be filled up time and time again with this reminder that he is with us, that he is for us, that if God gave us his son, he's also gonna provide everything that we need. One simple application of this concept is because God promises to provide, God also asks us or calls us to ask in prayer. 20 times in the New Testament, we're told to ask, ask, ask in prayer. So you have a God that sees, a God who knows, a God that gave his son. And so you can ask in prayer and come to him. 
Fourth question. The fourth question is actually two together, um, and we see it in verse 33. He says, who will accuse those God has chosen? Actually, in the, the version that we read, it said, who will bring any charge against the people that God has chosen? Who can make an accusation against them? And then in verse 34, he asks a similar question. He says, and who can condemn? Who can condemn the, the person that God has chosen? This is a question of accusation. Who can bring an accusation against God's people? Now, if you think that question through a little bit, who can condemn us or who can accuse us, it's kind of a strange question because Paul, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of people that can accuse us, right? There's all kinds of people that are lining up to accuse us sometimes, it feels like. We live in a society where we're seeing a rise in not only of people rejecting Christianity, but those who are speaking out against Christianity like it's negative, like it's hateful, like it's not loving. People are lining up to accuse people. Now, sometimes those are things that are deserved and we need to, you know, look at ourselves in the mirror and we need to get before God and and get right. But a lot of times the reality is we are going to be accused by the world and we're just going to be accused, right? And if you look at the Apostle Paul, that is nothing new. In fact, the accusations and the fears that we face are nothing compared to the accusation that Paul and the people of his day um, faced. But I think when Paul asks this question, who can accuse those that God has chosen, he's not only thinking about the people out there that will put us down and accuse us, but he's thinking of our chief adversary, who the Bible tells us is the devil. In fact, the, the, the name devil or the word devil literally means a slanderer or an accuser. And so when Paul writes, who can accuse or condemn? I think in large part, he's thinking of the slanderer or the accuser. And it makes me think of this beautiful passage in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation is filled with all these different battles between good and evil. And in Revelation 12, it's one of the great battles because what you see is the devil and his army are waging war against God's people. They're waging war against the Messiah. And eventually the angels of God overwhelm and defeat the devil, at least temporarily, and he's hurled down. Revelation 1210 says this. It says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And the point that, that God is making here and John gets a glimpse of this is when you compare to the salvation and the power and the authority of the Messiah and the power and authority of God, even the accuser is hurled down. But what you see in this is, is what our enemy, the devil, loves to do, which is to accuse which is to taunt. The devil will always want to point out your weakness, will always want to point out your past failures, bring up doubts, bring up temptations, put those things in front of you, make you feel like a failure. But Paul's whole point is, even with one as powerful as the devil and as relentless as the devil is, that accuser of God's people with Jesus on your side, who can bring an accusation? The answer is no one. Who can bring condemnation? He'd already covered that in verse one. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? 
I love the quote from the old hymn writer, John Newton. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, among other things. He was, a, um, before he came to Christ, he was actually a slave trader. Horrible guy, scoundrel of a, of a man. And Christ transforms his life, as you can read about in the song Amazing Grace. Um, but as, as John Newton walked with God, he also was, was aware that there was stuff in his past that rightfully he could be accused of, right? There were a lot of people that could point the finger at him. But this is what he says as he came to the end of his life. He says, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. You see, what Paul is saying here is not that we never deserve to be accused, but rather we have Jesus Christ who takes those accusations, who takes that condemnation for us. He's like the lawyer who pleads the case. He's like the judge who passes down the sentence, not guilty for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the the fourth question he asks. Who can accuse or who can condemn? The answer is no one. And then finally, the fifth question that he gets to is a great one. I love it. He says this. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And that's a question that we should burn into our hearts. Who should separate us from the love of Christ? This is a question about security. Is there anything that can snatch us away from God? Is my relationship with God in jeopardy or or fearful? What shall separate me from Christ's love? Because here Paul doesn't leave the answer up to chance. The other ones he's asking kind of rhetorical questions. But but for me, it's like Paul's like a kid on Christmas, at Christmas at this time, um, because he just bursts out this answer. It's like he can't contain himself. And he starts to throw out all of these things that a person might say could normally separate you from Christ. All of your worst fears, all of your biggest anxieties, all your biggest temptations. He throws all these things out as a way of asking the question, can any of these things separate you? from Christ? And the answer is no. So verse 35 is to the end of the chapter here is what we read. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you're like, amen, Paul, that is amazing. But honestly, when you you get to these verses, they deserve a whole sermon on their own. But what I want to do is I want to just look at this list that Paul gives us. Because like I said, it's like he's throwing all of your worst fears on there. All of your biggest suspicions. All of the things that bring you doubt. And in kind of this beautiful, poetic fashion, Paul answers this question, what can separate us from the love of God? So I put all of these in your notes if you want to follow along. These are things that Paul says cannot separate you from the love of God. Even if you face these things, you cannot be separated from the love of God, he says. The first two are trouble and hardship. What's one of the first things we think when we face trouble? Why does God hate me? Why is God so far away when I face this trouble? That can't separate us from the love of God. The word hardship is related to the word of being pressed down or wrung out or pressure. In other words, the image is kind of whether the worst stress that you can feel, the times when you feel wrung out and pressured 
Can those things separate you from the love of God? It can make us feel that way, but it doesn't separate us from the love of God. He says, can persecution separate us? Persecution, of course, means suffering for your faith, which for Paul was not just about being made fun of or, um, you know, being left out. Those are things that we certainly, you know, can experience and, you know, in our life may experience more of this persecution. But for Paul, it meant jail. It meant loss of friends. It meant physical harm. It meant even death. But Paul says, those things, those things can't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How about famine and nakedness? This is economic hardship. We usually tie economic blessing to to God's blessing, right? When I'm experiencing all these things, God is really on my side. But Paul says, no, you can face the worst economic pressure that you can feel to the point that you don't have any clothes or you don't even have any food. He says, that does not mean that God's love is separated from you. How about danger or sword? Like persecution, this speaks to the threat of actual violence. You know, can those separate us from God's love? Absolutely not. And if you're following along here, now we're to verse 37. And I love because Paul takes a little interlude before he gets back to the rest of this list. And he says, no, he says, in all these things, you need to know that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. And those five words, that uh, phrase, more than conquerors, is actually just one Greek word. It's a compound word, hooper nekomen. Hooper nekomen. Hooper means super or hyper or extreme. Nekomen means the victor or the war. So in other words, how amazing in that, when we face all of those things, don't forget that you are Hooper Nekoman. You are a super warrior. You are super victorious, even in all those things. And Paul says, I just have to remind you this, to this, and then he gets back to the list. And he says, because also can death or life separate us from the love of God? And the answer is no. Now for the Christian, of course, we know the answer is no. But when we think especially about death, we think that's the worst thing we can face, right? That's the very worst thing that we could face. And that's not to make light of that. But honestly, for the Christian, death just pulls back the veil and shows us the love of Christ at an even deeper level, right? And those loved ones that have gone before you, those loved ones in Christ that have moved on to glory, they're not separated from the love of God. They're experiencing it all the more. And that's the future for those who have their faith in Christ. Death or life can't even separate us. How about angels or, or demons? In Paul's day, people had all kinds of ideas about the supernatural and about demonic forces, everything good and bad, whether it's the weather or the, your health, it was all could be attributed to, to demons and angels. And Paul says, all that stuff, none of that can even separate you from the love of Christ. And some of us need to hear that, that even those spiritual forces can't separate us from Christ's love. How about the present this world that we're living in? Or how about the things to come? I think if there's one thing that causes a lot of us fear, it's the, the future, right? The unknown future has the power to consume us, to make, make us imagine the worst and how bad things might be. In fact, we live in a day right now that that fear of the future, I think is probably as strong as it's been in a long time. People look at the future and they're worried and they're uncertain and and we get it. And it reminds me of a quote from a senator um, who said this, talking about kind of especially the future. This senator said this, he says, our coins have been cheapened and debased by one leader after another to pay for expensive 
programs. Prices have skyrocketed. Savings have eroded people. Uh, savings have eroded. People are frustrated. Businesses are blamed for rising prices even when the government continues spending too much. Half the population is on welfare. Morals are on the decline. People demand more of their government but refuse to pay more. So politicians borrow even more to indulge them. Does that sound familiar to anyone? That is a quote written from a senator. Of course, that senator happened to be a Roman senator who lived around the time that Paul wrote these things. You see, the fear of the future is always going to be there. Now, the Roman Empire fell, so it's not like bad things can't happen. But the love of God will not separate you, whether empires rise or fall. Those cannot separate us from the love of God. Neither can powers. Powers here, I think, actually refers specifically to governments. Powers can usually mean spiritual powers, but he's already talked about angels and demons, so most people think that now he's really focused on kind of those government powers. And then he says heights or depths cannot separate us. A lot of scholars believe that this refers to kind of astrology and kind of that sense of fate or destiny that a lot of us feel like we have. They, they they measured the stars on whether they were height or low, high or low. So he says, even the height or the depth of the stars and and those kind of things cannot separate you from the love of God. And then to put an exclamation mark on it all, he says, nothing in all of creation can pull you away from God's love because in him you are Hooper Nekoman. You are more than a conqueror. You are a super victorious warrior. And that's the end of the midterm exam. And next week, we turn the corner and we begin a whole new section of the book. But it's almost as if before we move there, Paul wants our hearts to be cemented and firm in this stuff. So when it comes to questions of application and opposition and provision and accusation and security, he wants to remind us that the answers to all of those things and more are found in Jesus Christ. Now, before we move to a, a time of communion, I want to share just kind of one final story or illustration, if you will. And it's about a group of, of first-year philosophy students. And they're coming to the end of their term, and this philosophy professor says, uh, it's time for the final exam, and this is going to be a very difficult exam. It's going to be very challenging for you. Um, but here's the deal. He says, um, Everybody's allowed to bring a piece of paper into an anything that, uh, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, anything that you can get on that piece of paper, you could bring it into the test. And so people, of course, start thinking, awesome. And they start, you know, writing the smallest little font that they can, that they could get like a whole semester onto one little piece of paper. And they're all stressed out and they all come into the, this final exam and they've all got their t- paper, just all these words written on it. And one girl comes in and her paper is blank and they all look at her and kind of laugh a little bit. But the, the professor passes out the, the test and they begin to get started. And this girl takes her piece of paper and she just puts her blank piece of paper on the ground. And in from the door walks this PhD philosophy student who stands on the paper. And one by one starts to give her all of the answers to all of her questions. (laughs) And you're going to face some tests in life. And you're going to face some challenges. And you do not face them alone. Standing on that paper right beside you and in front of you and behind you and all around you for those that are in Christ Jesus is Jesus Christ saying, in me, you are a victorious warrior. And he knew that we needed to hear that 
And he knew that Christians for generations were going to need to hear that. And he knew that his own disciples needed to hear that. Because on the night that Jesus was to give his life, he celebrated with his disciples what we call communion. And so I want to just lead us through a, a quick time of communion. Um, if you, hopefully you grabbed one of these as you came in. If not, there's some at the front and, and at the back there, um, these little self-contained communion kits. I'm kind of thinking this might be our last time we need to use these. We'll see. Um, but at the bottom of this, or on one side, there's a little place where you can open it up and there's a, a, just a little piece of bread. And this is to symbolize that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, that he took bread and in this meal that he was celebrating with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Now, now Jesus knew that they were going out to face some tests. Jesus knew that they had some challenges in front of them. This is his way of saying, I'm standing on the paper right beside you. I am in you. I am with you. I am all around you. Because he took the bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he said to his disciples, he says, whenever you eat this, eat it in remembrance of me. And so let's eat together the bread that remind us of Christ's body. And then Jesus also took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said to his disciples, this is my blood given for you. He said, it's the blood of a new covenant. The old covenant was all about how you would work your way to God, but this is the the blood of a new covenant where by my sacrifice, you can be found in me. All the stuff that Paul's been talking about for eight chapters of Romans. That's that new covenant relationship with Christ. And Jesus says, whenever you drink of this cup, Do it in remembrance of me, that I am with you, that I am with you, I am in you, and you can find your life in me. So let's drink together in remembrance of him. God, I thank you so much for both the simplistic beauty and the powerful sacred truth of what that little bread and that little drink of juice reminds us of. Jesus Christ on the cross God in the flesh, laying down his life so that people like us could be in relationship with you. What amazing things. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder that there is nothing that can separate us from your love, that you've got us, you provide for us, that if you're for us, who can be against us? Lord, we rest in those things today. Quiet our hearts, quiet our spirits as we reflect and we remember those things with gratitude and devotion. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after we've taken that, we've got just a couple kind of closing songs, a chance for us to reflect a little bit on those things. I think the proper response is one of, 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 of gratitude to thank God for those things and then also devotion that, Jesus, we would live for you. So we'll turn towards that. Dismiss us with the word of prayer and ask God's blessing as we go. God, your people have gathered together in your name. Thank you, Lord, for your, the steady drumbeat of your word that calls us to love you and follow you and that you meet us and you are there for us. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to celebrate communion. And we go out now filled up by the power of the Holy Spirit and by your love demonstrated on the cross through Jesus Christ. We love you and we, your people, go in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great day.